Would you like to live a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life? Cultures from all over our planet have been addressing that concern for thousands of years, and their answers can help you in your life today. Join anthropologist and healer Robert Vetter as he introduces you to cultures of health and healing. Get ready now to try out some healing beliefs and practices from far and wide. Here's the host of your show, Robert Vetter. Welcome, everybody. I'm lucky today to have Dr. Stanley Krippner with me. Stanley Krippner, PhD, has held faculty appointments at Akami University, Fordham University, Kent State University, New York University, Saybrook University, Sophia University, and the California Institute for Integral Studies. He's the former director of the Child Study Center, Kent State University in Kent, Ohio, and of the Dream Laboratory, Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He has received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Parapsychological Association, the International Association for the Study of Dreams, and the Society for Humanistic Psychology. He is the past president of all three groups, as well as the Society for Psychological Hypnosis, which awarded him its 2002 Award for Distinguished Contributions to Professional Hypnosis. Krippner is a fellow of the Study for the Scientific Study of Religion, the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, and five divisions of the American Psychological Association, which granted him its 2002 award for Distinguished Contributions to the International Development of Psychology. He is co-author of the award-winning book, Personal Mythology, and co-editor of the award-winning book, Varieties of Anomalous Experience, and has published over 1,000 peer-reviewed articles. It's such a pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Krippner. Well, thank you for the invitation. And my pleasure. Um, so today, we're going to be talking to you a little bit about your background history and um, how you got to be involved in the study of healing. So I'm going to ask you to just take us through some of the high points of your life and what got you from your earliest beginnings up until today. Well, thank you very much for that invitation. I think that it was inevitable that I should take an interest in studying healing because I've had so many serious illnesses in my lifetime, starting when I was a child, had severe asthma, severe respiratory problems, didn't know if I was going to live or die. My parents were up all night with me. And I was constantly going to doctors and specialists. And here I am, 87 years old, and I've survived not only the childhood illnesses, but automobile accidents, internal bleeding, any number of other maladies over the years. I think that an important development was that when I was a child, my parents took me to a distant relative who was a physician, but they also took me to a chiropractor without telling our distant relative that I was going there. And so that was my first alternative healing experience, the chiropractor. And it seemed to help with my, uh, with my breathing problems. And then when I finished my graduate work, I had an unusual invitation to attend a conference 
that one of the speakers was a shaman, Grandmother Twyla-Nitch. Now I had read about shamans in the past because our farm was on Indian land, the Potawatomi Indian tribe in Wisconsin. And in reading about the Indian tribes, of course, I encountered the description of medicine men, medicine women, and shamans. So Grandmother Twyla-Nitch made a very strong impression upon me and I did keep in touch with her for some time. And then in 1957, I read an article in a Life magazine about a New York banker called Gordon Wasson, who was a mushroom specialist, and he had gone to Mexico and found a shaman among the Mazatec tribe who was actually using the psilocybin mushrooms which everybody thought had been abandoned for centuries. And I kept that article, never realizing that some years later I would have the opportunity to go and visit her in person. So my specialty within the field of healing has actually been with medicine people and shamans. And I would say that I've worked with or at least have interviewed maybe over 100 of them, nearly half of them women, by the way. People often think of shaman as being men, no, not at all. In some tribes, it's customary for the shamans to be women. And of course, each tribe has a different name for the healing specialist, but the anthropological term is shaman. And it's a very, very specific term. And to meet the criteria be called a shaman, in my opinion, one has to do three things. One has to be appointed by a community. One doesn't just go out and say, I am a shaman. No, that's not the way it works. A community, a tribe or a group of people must designate that person as a shaman and have a community support system going. Secondly, the shaman is able to enter into altered states of consciousness deliberately and at will. No, not accidentally. And the altered states might be due to mushrooms, might be due to dreams, might be due to breathing exercises, might be due to visionary experiences, but it's something that the shaman has under control. And then why do they enter an altered state? Well, they get information that's not ordinarily available and that other members of their community cannot access. And then the third criterion is that they have to share this information with members of the community that gave them shamanic status. They don't sell it, they don't go off and hide it, they don't hoard it. They're very community oriented. And Rolling Thunder, the medicine man who I've spent so much time with, actually had his own community for years and years and years in Nevada, and people literally came to visit from all over the world. So that's a capsule summary. Now, of course, in addition to that, I've been very active in the fields of psychology and anthropology, and it's been interesting to me to see how shamans and medicine men and medicine women use suggestion what we would call hypnosis, what they would use, what we would call the placebo effect. And, and so there are many psychological principles that I've observed firsthand in my observation of these native healers.
And what about in your life, Dr. Krippner? Um, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about your um, the moments in your life, the the people that you've met, and we're going to talk more about those people in our second interview. Um, but I'm curious a little bit about your your academic training and how that led to your work in the field and how you came to meet these different healers. Yeah, sure. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Wisconsin, and my minor field was actually health psychology. And so that was my introduction to the field of health and healing from an academic point of view. And those are very, very valuable courses that I've certainly built upon as time has gone on. And in my graduate work in psychology and education, I dealt a great deal with exceptional children, including children who had some sort of challenge, uh, speech or hearing problem, orthopedic problem, an emotional problem. So healing came into the picture there. And not only, shall we say, mainstream healing, but alternative modes of healing. Now, we use the term alternative healing to talk about a healing practice that's distinctly different than allopathic medicine. We use the term complementary healing to refer to healing methods that are a part of mainstream medicine, but complemented. They don't strike off on their own. When I was going to a chiropractor, that was really alternative medicine because chiropractic has some different assumptions than mainstream uh, allopathic medicine. Although, of course, people sometimes go to a chiropractor on the side, as I did, in which case it became complementary medicine. So these are some of the terms that are important in terms of our discussion. And again, what it comes down to, when push comes to shove, there's either medicine that works or medicine that doesn't work. There's either healing that's worked or healing that doesn't work. There's healing that's medicine that is evidence-based with research to back it up and healing practices that are not evidence-based, they might work, but we won't know for sure until there's rigorous research to support them. A good example of that would be acupuncture. Yes, I've used acupuncture myself. I found it useful. Yes. There is research on medicine, on acupuncture and Chinese medicine indicating it works for certain types of ailments. But in terms of a total practice as an alternative medical practice, I would say the research is still ongoing. And there, of course, are some mainstream medical experts who refuse to uh, recommend it because they think it's all a waste of time even though, as I said before, they overlook the uh, possibility that the placebo effect might justify using it from time to time. Now, in my own personal work, I've never depended upon alternative medicine 100%. I've always used it as complementary, sort of on the side. Yes, I've gone to shamans when I've been sick, but I've also gone, gone to mainstream uh, physicians, 
I am a member of the Kaiser Permanente Health Insurance. They've been extremely helpful. They saved my life last year when I had internal bleeding and I pressed my little button on my lifesaver and within minutes the ambulance is there to take me to the to take me to the emergency ward of the hospital and they found that I was losing blood and they stitched me up and I survived. So good heavens, I would be the last person to criticize mainstream medicine. All my saying is we have to have an open mind because new procedures are coming up all the time and you never know what's going to help one person that might not help another person. Medicine and psychotherapy also really have to be individualized. So can you tell me a little bit about how you began um, your meetings with uh, alternative healers? It was really serendipity. As I say, the meeting with grandmother Twyla Nitch of Massachusetts of the uh, Sequoia tribe, um, we met at a conference and then my meeting with Rolling Thunder, who I spent so many years with, was again serendipitous because I had a friend in New York City who was having a birthday party for the famous Indian musician from India, Alaraka, who played tabla accompanying Ravi Shankar. And after a concert, I went to the party and who should be at the party but Mickey Hart, the drummer for the Grateful Dead. And we had a very interesting discussion about the use of hypnosis to facilitate musical innovation. And we got to know each other and he said, I bet you'd like to know Rolling Thunder, the medicine man that I've been working with. And I said, yes, I would like to meet him. And so Mickey took a private airplane and brought Rolling Thunder to meet me in San Francisco. And so again, that was sheer serendipity. My meeting with Maria Sabina, the famous shaman from Life magazine, again, I never thought I would get to meet her. She's legendary. She played a very historic role in a number of ways. And I got to know a psychiatrist in Mexico City, Salvador Roquette, who invited me to witness the way that he was using uh, psychedelic drugs and psychotherapy, including mushrooms. And when I told him about my admiration for Maria Sabina, he arranged an expedition. So we got to actually meet her at her home in the little hamlet of Huatl de Jimenez in Oaxaca, Mexico. That was a great thrill. And my interviews with her were a very important part of, uh, of my training. Another complete serendipity was when I was in Brazil doing a workshop for the City of Peace in Brasilia. This is a uh, wonderful institution. I was just there again last year. And it's out in the countryside and they have a waterfall. And so while I was doing the workshop, a group of 50 shamans was actually camped out by the waterfall. Why? Because people were stealing their medicine. Uh, tourists were coming in and ripping them off. 
and a group of doctors who said they were from Harvard University were actually coming in drawing blood from their people, thinking that this might be the clue to corporations that want to have workers in tropical areas. So this meeting drafted a declaration of principles. And once I got to know these 50 shamans, they gave me a copy of this declaration that I took back to the United States, had it translated into English from Portuguese, put it on the internet, and that really served a very, very useful purpose in protecting the customs and the legacy of people from so many different tropical tribes in Brazil. So, as I say, this was all, all serendipity, and it yielded a great deal of knowledge that I've been able to share with other people. That's wonderful and, and fascinating, Dr. Krippner. Thank you for sharing that uh, good slice of your life with us. On, I'm hoping that our listeners are going to tune back in for our next episode when we're going to have a chance to find out more about the specific teachings that you learned from the various teachers that you've mentioned so far. Before we conclude for today, I just wanted to let folks know that you might want to read a couple of Dr. Krippner's books. Um, he wrote two books on the life of um, Rolling Thunder, and I've read both of them from cover to cover, so I certainly recommend them. One is called The Voice of Rolling Thunder, and the other is called The Shamanic Powers of Rolling Thunder. So thank you, Dr. Krippner, and listeners, please tune in next time. Thank you. This has been Cultures of Health and Healing with Robert Vetter. Thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe and rate this show and share it with others. Until next time, remember, your health and healing matter, and you can find your own unique path to optimum wellness.